Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of technology, media, and business in Asia. The show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desks. And Linkshus, the place where you can sell your products everywhere. Hi, Brian. Hi, good morning, Bernard. Good morning. It's, how are you doing? Good, thank you. Yourself? I am well. And we are talking to Brian Ma, Vice President for IDC's Asia-Pacific Client Devices Research Group. And he covers PC, mobile phone, tablet, tin client, and display research across 16 countries in the region. And I've actually heard Brian speaking in a number of interesting publications like Wall Street Journal, The Economist, Financial Times, and da-da-da-da-da. Of course, Brian, maybe you can tell me a little bit about what's your current role in IDC and some of the more deeper research areas that you're actually covering at the moment. Sure, and uh, thanks for having me on board. As you mentioned, I manage our devices research team here in Asia. So that covers basically any kind of endpoint or client-side device, right? So PCs, tablets, phones, thin clients, monitors, wearables, and so forth. And also, one of the things that's in my area of coverage is our global hardware assembly team, where it's basically a focus on ODMs and LCD panels. So we've got guys in Taipei looking at what's going on in Shenzhen and this whole, you know, eruption of an ecosystem and how much, you know, China is blossoming in terms of, you know, the sophistication of the manufacturing and the design and is really helping to fuel a lot of these interesting Chinese smartphone vendors, which frankly is, I think is probably one of the hottest topics that I personally get calls on these days, right? It's, mm. you know, who is Xiaomi? How are they fighting Apple and Samsung? And, you know, all this other kind of stuff. We talk a lot about Xiaomi with reference to Apple and Samsung in China, but I know that you have written some interesting article about the Chinese smartphone market. I mean, other than Xiaomi, there's also Oppo, which is well known for the OnePlus One phone. I think a lot of people in the West actually like the phone. And then there is also other traditional vendors like Lenovo, Huawei. Maybe tell me a little bit about, maybe I might miss out other interesting smartphone vendors. And then tell me also a little bit about how they are currently operating, because I think they're operating at low margins. I mean, Xiaomi adopts a contract manufacturing model. That's yeah. right. How do they able to do it at such low cost? Sure, sure. So there's quite a few questions in there. Let's try to, I'll try to separate yep. them. First off, if we just look at the general Chinese mobile phone market, yes, there certainly are a lot of players. There's the traditional guys, like you mentioned, everyone from Lenovo and Huawei and ZTE and so forth. There's a lot of upcoming disruptors like Xiaomi, like you mentioned. There are also a lot of, and, you know, you mentioned not just Oppo and OnePlus, and probably back to one of your earlier points, note that actually OnePlus claims that they're operating separately from Oppo. It's actually a bunch of executives who left Oppo to start OnePlus, and they may have a common shareholder between the two companies, but they operate fairly independently. Ooh. So Oppo and OnePlus are separate, and actually there's another link to a company called Vivo. It all links mm. to a larger parent company called BKK. It's wow. actually quite so an interesting... It's complex, uh, actually. Yeah, quite an interesting corporate structure, but mm. what does does get interesting and maybe to your point is that you know when the OnePlus guys started they actually still leveraged a lot of the Oppo stuff including a bit of the hardware design they leveraged some of the manufacturing they use color OS which is one of the OS's that they were using for the China market and anyway and maybe back to back
backpedal a bit back to your original question. Yes, there's other guys like Joni and Coolpad and, you know, a million other vendors. And what gets interesting is a lot of the tie-ups that are happening in the Chinese mobile phone space. People like Qihu, right, who are more of an online and software player tying up with guys like Coolpad to start doing phones. You've got, you know, Alibaba trying to match up with other players. You know, there's other companies here like Meizu and some of these other guys. I think what gets really interesting about many of these disruptors, if you will, or at least where a lot of these names that might not necessarily be very well known to folks outside of China. What gets interesting about a lot of these is many of these guys are coming in from an approach that is not hardware centric, right? The traditional guys, Lenovo, Huawei, these guys, they're used to moving boxes, if you will. Whereas on the other hand, Xiaomi, you know, their background is actually in software. And it's just that the, the hardware is the more visible part of their business. If you look at a lot of this other stuff that I mentioned around Alibaba, what Alibaba is doing, what Chihu is doing, and all these other guys, you're increasingly starting to see, you know, a different kind of a play and a different model rather than just the traditional hardware model. And in response to that, you've got some of these traditional guys like Lenovo, Huawei, and ZTE doing their own little spin-offs to try to compete with many of these disruptors, right? Lenovo's got a spin-off that they just launched, in fact, a month ago in the start of their new fiscal year called Shenqi, right? I think in English, the, it's been roughly translated as fancy maker, which doesn't sound very nice, but you know, it's a China-focused online-focused company that is meant to compete with Xiaomi. And likewise, Huawei and ZTE, they've got their own little brands, Honor and Nubia, respectively, where they're meant to compete with online channels or online competitors like Xiaomi, whereas the more traditional Huawei and ZTE brands still go through the traditional retail and brick and mortar thing. So there's a lot of different things that are happening there in the China market. And maybe to then the next point that you were mentioning, you know, a lot of these guys, yes, indeed, are operating at low margins. Now, part of it is simply because of price competition, right? They have, they've, they've been getting a lot of attention precisely because they go in at a low price. You could argue that many parts of China are sense, price sensitive, so they use that to get a lot of attention and so forth. But, you know, to one of the points that I was making earlier, too, if you look at some of these guys like Xiaomi or, you know, many of the other players, or especially the ones that are tied up with other providers, we have to keep in mind that hardware is, you know, not their own business and in many cases might not necessarily be their primary business and that's why they're able to work on low margins for the hardware because ultimately the hardware just becomes a platform to launch or be able to provide other services which they can make money off at least in theory I and mean, if you want we can spend a bit of time talking about Xiaomi I think they're a bit of a poster child of that but yeah in theory at least you know Xiaomi has been able to build up such a strong loyal user base that they can use that loyal user base in order to launch other things, including a number of not just smart home products, like what have they done, like air purifiers and cameras and this and that, but they've even got their own, they're going into the banking space. They're actually, they've actually got a money market fund that mm. they launched recently as well too. So there's yeah. a lot of interesting stuff that's going on there. Hmm. So when it comes to Xiaomi, I always have difficulty in pinning down who they are. So for example, some to some, they are a consumer electronics company. Yeah. To some, they are, a little bit like a web services company similar to maybe Amazon or, or Google. And then at some point, some people claim that they're actually an e-commerce company because they, yeah. have, they have performed, they kind of have a loyal customer base. They are able to push products out very quickly. So when looking at Xiaomi, how do you see this company as and what do you really think is the company's competitive advantage? 
Sure. I would say, you know, out of the descriptions that you made, it's really more the latter two descriptions. So what's interesting is, you're right, the most visible part of their business today is certainly about phones. And even if you look at the bulk of their revenue, of course, it comes from phones. So naturally, people tend to think of them as a hardware company, as a smartphone company. But I think as I alluded to earlier, look at the background of the founder of Xiaomi, right? He comes from an e-commerce background. He also comes from a software background, right, with Kingsoft as well as a company that he sold to Amazon later. So his background actually is not in hardware. And remember, when the company first started, they started designing user interfaces. It was the MIUI that was getting a lot of attention. And then the hardware was coming out. And this is where, yes, while it's true that today the bulk of their business is in hardware, frankly, everyone was kind of scratching their heads at that point in time, like, okay, how is this company able to move prices at basically little or no margin, or possibly even at a loss, how are they able to sustain such a business? Why are so many investors pouring money into this company? It's been in the past year or two where that story has finally become a bit more obvious and it's started to unfold because what Xiaomi has been starting to do over the past year has been showing other, you know, basically they've been opening up their jacket coat and, and we're finally starting to see the other pieces of the puzzle fall into place, right? What are those pieces of the puzzle? It's things like the smart home stuff that I mentioned. Being able to sell stuff like an air purifier or a camera or for that matter they've been doing a set-top box for a while what they're basically doing is they're laying the groundwork for a smart home by leveraging the phones the phones was basically a way for them to grab loyal users we've all heard stories and we've all seen how rapidly loyal you've got Xiaomi users you know paying money to go to their launch events buying stuffed bunnies and all this stuff people worship Xiaomi just as you know many many others might worship Apple right so they've been able to develop such a loyal fan base and keep in mind that the demographic of the typical user Xiaomi user is tend to be more of a young professional if you will you think about them when they are you know at that stage in life they may be building up their new homes uh, getting into their new family life whatever it is Xiaomi has a very interestingly captive audience where they can they're in a good position to be able to launch a lot of other things now is that you know, are these other things going to be things like an air purifier? No, I mean, even that probably isn't necessarily moving at great margins either. But if you think about where they can go, potentially launching services, you know, to that point I was making earlier about, you know, a money market fund that they've got as well, too. Mm-hmm. It becomes a very, very interesting play because the phone was, in many ways, just that starting point to grab that users. From there, now that they have that loyal user base, they have a platform and a user base with which they can launch a number of various things, whether it's hardware or a service or software or whatever it is. That's why, I believe at least, why, you know, that's the potential that a lot of the investors see in it as well, too. It is a, it's more about the loyal user base rather than the phones themselves. But here lies the paradox because Xiaomi, outside of China, is not really the services companies controlled by Google. They're using the Google stock Android. Yes. So if they go into a market like India, probably they will be using something like the Google OS. So for the latter two business models, which is the web services and also with the e-commerce piece, where would they be kind of making the money? I mean, China, they have no problems because everything else are banned. The MIUI is integrated to all the major web applications and they are able to monetize on that. But I think for a normal user out there or maybe some analysts out there, they also find it very difficult to see how is the growth story to look at in countries like India or our China. Yeah, agreed. I have a hypothesis on that. I'll I'll come to that Mm. in a second. But to one of your earlier points, you're right in the sense that when... 
Xiaomi is selling phones outside of China. They're actually still using their own ROM. They're still using MIUI, but they are. It is Google cert, Google Mobile Services certified. They've been able to make it compatible with it, so that yes, the, a lot of the services that come with the phones when they sell outside of China are that entire Google suite of services. Everything from Google Play to you know Chrome to Google Maps and so forth. You know, maybe back to your question then when you look at what they are doing in an overseas market you're right it is questionable how can they what what are these other services and things that they can sell you know the stuff that i mentioned earlier you're right that's really just from a domestic china market context is this stuff that they can necessarily develop overseas and for that matter a lot of that fan base and that culture in china doesn't necessarily translate well overseas into these other markets, right? And so this is these are certainly challenges that they do need to address as they go overseas. And the good thing is, if as as one point of evidence, you know, if you look at the fan base that they've been able to develop in India, the number of people who have been lining up to attend their launch event in India just a few weeks ago, they're already at least getting a bit of momentum in terms of developing that fan base. Now what we haven't seen yet, and to your point, what, what we haven't seen yet is, okay, so then what kind of services are they going to launch in some of these countries because they can't just take the China services and transplant them over to these other countries, or at least not all of them. And so that's the part that we haven't quite seen yet. However, we're getting a bit of a hint, right? Even with the, what was it, the Mi 4i that they launched in India a few weeks ago, they're already using a bit of crowdsourcing to bulletproof basically the, they called it an IVR, right? Interactive voice response. But basically the, you know, the voice prompting technology, they're using their fans in India, especially you consider all the dialects and, and languages that there are in India. They're using that to help improve the system. So they're already starting to localize a number of their services for certain markets like India. So that gives a bit of a hint that maybe we'll start to see more coming later. Have they announced anything yet? No. What are those services going to be? Again, it's it's anybody's guess. But if we assume that they they t- they extend the strategy that they've been using to in China and basically localize them for these other markets, and it seems like India being, you know, one of the larger markets outside of India, and, and frankly one of their biggest priorities outside of India, you know, it'll be interesting to see what they do in India and potentially if they're able to get some stuff in some of these other markets as well. Now, lastly, then what I wanted to get to was my hypothesis on again how what ultimately are they going to be doing as they go overseas? You know, it's kind of funny if we were to assume. Let's let's take the negative. Let's Let's take a pessimist view or or a big skeptic's view on all this. Let's assume that Xiaomi really can't translate these services outside of China into these other markets. Let's say maybe they try or maybe they don't even have a game plan behind this. This is kind of the crux of my hypothesis here. Let's say that they can't translate these services overseas. Then what that means is their overseas markets are really just hardware plays. They're just moving phones. And as we've seen... You know the prices of their phones overseas. Again, they're it's they're not necessarily making a lot of money off of these uh, off of the hardware, if at all. And so, what is the ultimate rationale then for going overseas? My hypothesis is. Well, part of it could simply just be about getting enough scale from a component and a supply chain perspective that it helps feed their core business back home in China. In other words, you know. China market, as we've seen, the China smartphone market is already is 
is flattening out right now. We're expecting a relatively flat market at best, maybe single digit percent growth rate in China for smartphones in this upcoming year. So their home market is pretty much tapped out from a smartphone perspective. So if they're able to move more phones overseas, they need more components. By getting more components, they've got more scale, they can get more leverage with the component suppliers. And that in turn helps them to be even more competitive in back in their home market of China, where they can move these phones at a low cost, and then which in turn fuels the service. However, again, I think this is probably oversimplifying and a bit too negative of a perspective here. I believe that, you know, while certainly getting more scale is part of their plan, ultimately, I think they are going to be able to localize their services to some of these markets. But I think the key here is don't expect it to happen overnight. I think what, you know, it is something where they're learning just as well. It's going to take them time to learn these local markets. They have to prioritize on some of these markets, which is why I think right now they're, it, it seems their, their focus will be on India. So I think we'll... If we do start to see more of these services that get launched in the overseas market, we'll probably see it in India first from them. Although I think the big wild card that everyone else is watching is Hugo Barra's home home country of Brazil, right? When and is when and if and when Xiaomi really starts to go into Brazil, how are they going to do it? And maybe to your question, are there going to be localized services off of these? Hmm. So that's interesting. It kind of sticks true to Xiaomi's original game plan in China. They started off crowdsourcing applications through yeah. through their um, UI OS. So I think now that you mentioned it, it's kind of that they are trying to use the same strategy to understand the Indian market and then basically build the web services on top of the Google layer such that Google won't, won't be able to have that competitive advantage of understanding. Because I, I've seen a lot of Google devices out in other Asia-Pacific markets, but they are not really localized. So Xiaomi's strategy is adapt and localize. Well, and keep in mind, too, that the Google services that we're talking about are really just from a position of being able to sell the phone, right? If you don't have, if you're selling your phone outside of China, if you don't have Google Maps, if you don't have the Google Play Store, if you don't have, you know, a number of the key Google APIs enabled, basically, the, the value proposition of the phone is much lower. So they need those Google services in order to sell those phones overseas. But I think the services that they, that Xiaomi would roll out aren't so much about replacing the maps and whatever it might be, you know, it could be other stuff. Like if they really are being in a position to try to help build a young professional's home, launch a lot of these smart home kind of things, that's, I think, you know, more of where we might start to see some interesting play. Hmm. So how's the market share of Chinese smartphone vendors are like? I always hear about Xiaomi, but I'm, I'm sure the market share is a little bit different when someone really observes into China. Yeah, and what's interesting is, you know, the competitive landscape in China has been changing very, very quickly, right? Just one year ago, Samsung was the top vendor in China. And actually, we just put out a press release on this earlier this week. So actually, you can you go to the link and you can see some of the numbers a bit more obviously. But it, it is a case where in the most recent quarter, in the January to March quarter of 2015, we reported Apple as a top vendor, displacing Xiaomi, which in the previous quarter was leading the market. Now, a lot of this we do need to keep in mind, however, is based upon the launch of the iPhone 6 and 6 Plus. So uh, Apple basically launched that late last year. We start, we continue to see more, mo- more momentum coming from that, which is what really put Apple into that leadership position in the most recent quarter. But what's also interesting, though, is to see a vendor like the number three vendor, Huawei, which granted, if you just look at the numbers, 
you know, it doesn't necessarily seem like a huge story. They've kind of been in that number three-ish spot for a while. But what we've started to see is things like the Huawei Ascend Mate 7, right? That's one of their phones that they've got out there. We've started to see a lot of buzz about that phone, particularly from customer reviews on online e-commerce sites, basically praising how well built the phone is, particularly the antenna and how well people can continue to get good signal strength in like underground parking lots or whatever it might be, where Huawei, you know, Huawei has been trying to basically push themselves upwards in terms of going to a higher end or at least a mid-range kind of a phone rather than just being perceived as a low-end cheap phone player and they're they're being they're actually starting to get a lot more successful or at least a lot more momentum around that so Huawei is one to, to keep an eye on in that sense and then of course you've got Samsung which has just tumbled so much you've got a vendor like Lenovo which interestingly enough you know, made a decision a couple years ago to really go after the low end, which got them a lot of unit market share, but now it's kind of hurting them in the sense that they've just got so much competition on the low end. And now they're trying to get themselves back on their feet. They've got Motorola and they've finally launched the Motorola brand in the China market, but so far it hasn't really pulled them up that much you know they're trying to use Motorola as a more of a mid-range to high-end brand in China it's still relatively new in China so they haven't really been able to pull themselves back up on that so I guess it is interesting this again just to my earlier point about how quickly these rankings and the, the vendors positions can change in the market mm. there so what are the trends are you going to expect to see from China in this upcoming year? Well, quite a few things. I mentioned earlier how a lot of these vendors are, a lot of the traditional vendors are are spinning off ulti- multiple brands like Nubia or Honor and some of the, and Shenxi, right? So you've got some of these traditional vendors that are deploying basically what you might be able to call a multi-brand strategy, or at least they're spinning off so- subsidiaries and they try to argue that they run rather independently of the parent company so that the there isn't any clash, right? The challenge with a lot of these traditional companies is, you know, they're so used to operating in their own incumbent ways that they can't be as nimble as some of these startups who don't have any of that legacy. So the idea behind, let's say in Lenovo's case, behind creating a company like Shenxi, which they argue operates pretty independently of Lenovo itself, is to free itself from Lenovo's legacy and being able to compete with many of these disruptors that don't have that legacy uh, in place. Some of the other stuff that we're seeing is we do expect to see more and more of these uh, different channels, the way these guys are going to market. It's interesting because as much as you have these traditional vendors that are trying to push into online sales to fight with the likes of Xiaomi, you've also got the reverse happening. You're finding that some of the online or primarily online guys like Xiaomi realizing that in order for them to grow, they've got to go into more traditional channels, like not just brick and mortar, but also telcos, right? So a great example is Xiaomi. I think they, I think it was even just this past week or two where they finally did a retail store sale in China. And of course, in other markets like India, they've been lining up with uh, e-commerce providers like Flipkart and Snapdeal and these other guys. You know, in fact, a lot of these flash sales are done through e-commerce providers. There, Xiaomi's also been working with some of the operators. Oh, and of course, you've got a lot of, you know, if, if you've ever, by the way, if you've ever seen 
Xiaomi units being sold in a retail store in you know whatever country it might be. Officially speaking, those aren't provided by Xiaomi directly. Those are usually done by re-exporters. There are third parties in here that basically take those units from the flash sales and then they dump them into other places, including you know, in retail stores and many times not often, not actually in the original country itself. So there's quite an interesting ecosystem going on there. But nonetheless, that is, uh, you know, the channel diversification is, is another trend that's expected. And maybe one last thing, to worth pointing out is that you know when we look at the China market we talked a bit about this earlier but the China market is one that is you could argue is maybe not so much saturated but it is maturing in the point where to the point where at least the growth rates that we're expecting for the China market are relatively flat or at best low single digit or single digit percentage growth so what is that doing right that's forcing a lot of these Chinese vendors to go overseas they're looking for growth where in other countries where the growth is much stronger what are these other countries they're India, they're Indonesia, they're potentially Brazil, some of these other markets, right? So that's why you see not just Xiaomi, but you look at other guys like Meizu, you look at Joni, you look at a lot of these other guys, Oppo as well too. There's quite a bit of momentum for these vendors to be going into these overseas market because it's like, okay, back home, yes, it's a big market, but it's not really growing that much. Let's go to these other countries where we are seeing a lot of uh, potential. Actually, it's interesting. The In the old days, like Japan and Korea, for example, Samsung and Sony, the next market after their home markets is usually the U.S. market. But in these days, the Chinese smartphone vendor seems not to avoid the U.S. market. Instead, they're going to all the other big emerging markets. So yes. Is that, is that going to be a trend? I know part of it is because of intellectual property disputes, but... Is it going to be a trend for, for from your view? Yes, yes. I mean, the intellectual property certainly is a big deal. And if you look at just how litigious of a market the U.S. is, all that blood that Apple and Samsung shed in that whole lawsuit a year or two ago, I mean, that's that's scaring everybody, right? Nobody wants to get tangled up in that. And, and it's not just Chinese vendors that are scared. Even if you look at you know, let's say traditional PC vendors like Dell, right? They're, Dell always, I, it's funny, you listen to like, Back at least when Dell was a public company, when you listen on a lot of the earnings calls, what was one of the questions that Dell would always get is, when are you entering the mobile phone market? And the answer from Dell oftentimes too was, well, if you look at who's, you know, who's really got a lot of what's going on in the mobile phone space, it ultimately comes down to two vendors, right? They're implying it was Apple and Samsung, right? And they're slugging it out in, in all those kinds of uh, legal issues. So yeah, that's, that's certainly, uh, intellectual property certainly is going to be a challenge uh, in the US, which is frankly why you do see a lot of these Chinese vendors going to many of the more developing markets. Many of the stuff that these Chinese vendors have learned in China already are more, they're more easily applicable to some of these developing markets. And some of the paths are also less trodden, if you will, in the sense that the U.S. being such a mature market, the channels are very well established. The operators have such a strong stranglehold on how phones are distributed in the U.S. that there are just so many barriers to entry in the U.S. that make it a very, very difficult market to penetrate, right? Even even some of the Chinese vendors that have tried to crack in there, like Huawei and, and ZTE and these guys, even TCL Alcatel, some of these guys as they try to move in there, you know, they're, they're struggling with many of that as well too, just because the operators have just so much of a strong stranglehold. Whereas if you look at many of these developing markets, the channel structure of developing markets is what's sometimes referred to as a more open market, right? Where 
it's not necessarily postpaid plans that are subsidized by operators and where operators have such a strong control over the phones. Many times these are unsubsidized phones sold through open market or rather maybe a better way to explain it is, you know, through traditional retail just as an unsubsidized device, right? And so that's why when you look at some of these Chinese players, they can come into some of these at a low price. They can leverage a lot of stuff that they've already learned in China in many of these developing markets uh, rather than just fight what is admitted going to be a what would be a very very tough battle in the US for you know all the reasons that we mentioned earlier mm. so given that most of them except Xiaomi they are weak in software how are they compensating is really cyanogen is the only solution for them now well keep in mind actually so a couple of things there cyanogen keep in mind is if you actually look at all the Chinese vendors, actually, there's only one vendor that's using Cyanogen, and that's OnePlus. Mm. And even then, OnePlus only uses Cyanogen for phones that are sold outside of China. Within China, they actually use Color OS, which is the ROM that was developed by Oppo. Maybe the better way of putting it is not so much about Cyanogen specifically, but what Cyanogen represents, which is basically non-Google Android. Right. So it, in China, it's not necessarily about Cyanogen yet anyway, but rather just about a lot of custom ROMs that are developed by by the by a lot of these Chinese phone vendors for the local market, right? We talked about Color OS for Oppo. Meizu has one called Flyme OS, right? You know, name your name your Chinese vendor. They've usually got their own locally developed ROM. But I think, you know, if I can digress back to Cyanogen a bit real quick, I think what does get interesting about Cyanogen and maybe why they're getting so much investor attention these days too, is precisely for the fact that, you know, they've basically modularized Android where you can remove the Google component if you don't want to, or at least you can add your own layer uh, on top of that. So, you know, could there be a bit of a Cyanogen play in China? Sure. But of course, there's a lot of those other local Chinese ROMs as well too. Yeah, anyway, so it's not to say that the other Chinese vendors don't have software experience. If anything, they have, in fact, developed their own local ROMs for the Chinese market. But yes, Xiaomi is the one that really came from that software background. And maybe more so, maybe it's not even about saying that they came from a software background. It's more so that they came from a non-hardware background. And that's why it's more about them having, you know, looking at the market from a perspective as an e-commerce provider rather than as a phone vendor. Mm. How are they, these Chinese smartphone makers kind of shaping against Micromax and Samsung. I mean, Micromax is kind of big in India. Samsung, I guess, is global, but they are being taken, their market share being taken apart by everyone at the moment. Yeah, I, I was going to say, it's an interesting choice of the vendors that you chose there because Micromax, as you pointed out, is really just an India-only company. I guess the way I read it is, you know, there's how are Chinese vendors competing against local OEMs, Micromax being one example. You know, you could pick another country like Cherry Mobile in the Philippines or, you know, whatever else in Indonesia and this and that, or, you know, the large incumbents like Samsung. And it certainly is a case where they are being disruptive. I hate abusing that word too much, but it is a case where you do have the likes of Micromax watching competitors like Xiaomi very, very closely. And that's precisely why Micromax actually spun off their own little company called Yu, right? Y-U. And by the way, that's, if you hadn't noticed, and again, just a quick digression, Y-U is actually, it's meant to be a direct attack on Xiaomi in the sense that Xiaomi, when they go overseas, they, they drop the Xiao part. They just call it M-I, me, mm. right? So basically it's you versus me. Oh, <laughs> When you look at okay, yeah, that's a so, good anecdote to remember. Yeah, but 
either way, the point is, yes, guys, local local heroes, if you will, like Micromax or Carbon, uh, you know, to use another India example. These guys certainly are watching how many the invasion of these Chinese vendors, if you will, right? They've already seen for quite a while vendors like Joni and Oppo and these guys really pushing into their market. So they're certainly watching them closely. All the same, you've got a lot of these large players like Samsung that are getting pinched on the low end as well, too, precisely because a lot of these guys are undercutting, you know, undercutting their their mid-range and low-end phones on price. Maybe one other quick note that's worth mentioning too is we look at a lot of these local players in some of these developing markets. Again, using Micromax and Carbon as an example. What does get interesting is we do have to keep in mind in many ways you could argue they're Chinese vendors too. Not so much in the sense that they're not local companies because they are local companies, you know, headquartered locally and so forth, but they're Chinese in the sense that they rely very heavily on ODMs based in Shenzhen. You, you look at a lot of these local players, they are many times Android-focused players because they're relying on a lot of designs that are coming out of Shenzhen and manufactured in many cases cases in Shenzhen. Now, of course, with some of these players, they are starting to manufacture and assemble locally, and it's not to belittle them or disparage them in saying that they don't contribute any design into there at all. Of course, they do have design teams. They work closely with the ODMs. But in many ways, it is a case where, at least initially when they started, a lot of these designs were coming out of China itself. It's just that they localized it to their local market. And now what they're being faced with is many of those same Chinese companies in coming into their local market, but under their own brand names and under their with their own marketing capabilities to boot. So it is interesting to, to see how that kind of plays out. And that's why some of the smaller local players I'm not I won't be surprised if you see more of them dropping out soon but you will still see some of the larger local players like Micromax continuing to try to duke it out and they are to their credit they really are putting up a good fight against Xiaomi in uh, India okay so we move a little bit to another area which you covered a lot which is the PC and tablet markets yeah I kind of put up this whole start with the iPad sales. I've listened to read a lot of news media from the US that always have this claim that the iPad sales is declined. So, and they say that they have declined over eight quarters. But my impression as a consumer kind of tell me otherwise, more and more people that I know are holding iPads. So can you just kind of help me to understand what is really going on? Sure. A couple of points. I think, yeah, that point about iPad sales declining over mm. eight quarters, I think they're I'm not sure if that's completely correct. I think there was a story that I saw where they, even in the chart that they posted there, if you look at fourth quarter 13, year on year, it's actually higher than fourth quarter 12. And our numbers show that as well too. So I'm not sure if the eight, eight straight quarters comment is completely correct. But nonetheless, I think it still comes back to the, the concern that everybody has, which is the fact of the matter is that the, the tablet market, regardless of its iPad or otherwise, the tablet market isn't as explosive of a market as it was when it had first started. The growth rates are much lower now. There are some concerns about whether longer term, whether people really need tablets. Would they are phablets, for instance, just replacing the tablets, especially now that you can get a six inch phone. Why do you need to carry a third device? You, maybe all you need is a PC and a phone rather than that tablet stuck in the middle. Mm -hmm. So those are all certainly still valid concerns. And it is a case where we've been we've been refreshing our tablet forecasts as well, too, where they are admittedly much more conservative, where it's because of these factors, right? It's kind of getting tablets are kind of getting pinched in the middle. Now, having said that, however, it's not to say that the tablet market is going away. And there's a number of reasons, by the way, to reconcile one of your earlier anecdotes about how you still see people with iPads. One of the other reasons why tablet growth rates aren't as big is also because the lifespan of the tablets is 
is pretty good, at least with an iPad, right? Yeah. IPad, Apple's done such a good job in building those things that you really don't need to replace them that quickly. Whereas phones, people actually do replace them after a couple of years, particularly in the U.S. because they're bound to contracts that last two years and you, you get a you know replacement. Tablets, you know, personally, I still use an iPad too, and that thing is still rock solid. That thing, I dropped that thing on marble and it still works perfectly <laughs> fine. Lifespan is another thing. But to the point on the growth or the potential that we see for tablets, there is certainly still a lot of potential in the sense that people definitely still use it. There are a lot of advantages to not having a keyboard in certain cases, of course, and all the stuff around battery life and the apps and consuming media, most importantly. But also when you start looking at enterprise adoption of tablets, particularly when we look at field force situations, when you look at you know everything from banking to retail to service-oriented scenarios, there is quite a bit of potential for tablets in those particular areas where you don't want to be encumbered by a traditional clamshell based machine. That's why you see guys like Apple tying up with IBM to go after the enterprise. That's why you see Microsoft and the whole Windows camp getting very excited about that because obviously they have a lot of legacy in the enterprise that they can try to leverage, arguably potentially even to an even better position than Apple and IBM. Although again, that's debatable. So um, how, how does that actually compare to the PC market? I mean, personal computers market. I, I, I kind of think of PCs as laptops and desktops, if, if you may, can correct me as well on that. I mean, given all these countries are going mobile first, will the demand for personal computers, PCs as a whole, reduce or are they still on par with the tablets? So the thing to keep in mind is, first off, PCs are a bigger market. And you do have to keep in mind that let's we, we need to look at the market as a whole, not just from a consumer perspective, right? The beating that PCs have been taking over the past few years on account of tablets is mainly on the consumer side, right? It is true that consumers have been buying tablets instead of PCs. That's why consumer PCs have been struggling a lot. But where are PCs still being purchased in very, very high quantities? It's on the commercial side. Businesses still very, very much use PCs. PCs are still very much a productivity thing. You need that full keyboard, the processing capability, the local storage and all that. And of course, there's a bit of a legacy element in there too, right? I IT departments tend to be, in many cases at least, tend to be fairly conservative. If it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? So they'll stick to what's proven and what's known, and that's a clamshell PC running traditional Windows, running traditional Windows apps. You know, there are, of course, the more progressive IT departments that stick their neck out there and go on the mobile platform and maybe enable some of these. And we're starting to see that momentum happening. But in many cases, the underlying current and the inertia that's keeping the PC market going is the commercial sector, even if many of those are also starting to consider deploying tablets or two-in-ones to their field force as a way to augment their existing fleet of clamshell-based notebooks. Mm. So which comes to the next interesting point about Microsoft Surface. I mean, I've been seeing some of these um, professionals in the commercial enterprise site starting to adopt the Surface Pros. And given also Microsoft, you're seeing a very different Microsoft ever since Sasha Nandela took over. How do you see the Surface Pros entering into the Asia market then? Yeah, I mean, so a few thoughts here. Uh, first off, Microsoft's done a pretty good job with the Surface Pro. They've took them a few iterations, but the Surface Pro 3 is something that is, they've, they've really been able to get a good design on that. And they're getting a lot of traction in a number of markets here in Asia, including China, which is very interesting. They are going to market with these. Granted, the price is still relatively high in the grand scheme of things, but it is something where it's getting a lot of attention. It's appealing to prosumers, or maybe a better way of putting it is white collar professionals. Those who BYOD, we're starting to see a lot of that as well too. I think the challenge that we're going to see with Microsoft, however, is that, of course, traditionally, they're not a hardware vendor. 
right? I mean, sure, maybe they move some keyboard and mice and that kind of thing under the Microsoft brand, but they're not necessarily a tablet or a PC vendor because they've been relying on their OEM partners to do that in the past. And so if you look at Microsoft from a channel perspective, what the way that they're deploying Surface Pros today actually is not quite suited for enterprises yet in the sense that they oftentimes leverage retail channels to deploy products there and their commercial channels tend to be more software focused. They're not quite the system integrators that are used to deploying hardware as a whole solution with software. So Microsoft, particularly out here in Asia, they've still got a bit of work ahead of them in terms of being able to better align their channel partners. We've in fact actually heard some anecdotes where a, a certain business wanted to get a, a, a quantity of Surface Pro 3s, they were actually told to go to one of the retail stores in Singapore to procure their units, and then the integrator would actually do all the integration on top of that. Yeah. So the channel structure for Microsoft here in Asia isn't, you know, it, they, they still need to adapt to that. It'll, it'll take a bit of time. It is something where, you know, maybe back backing up to your original question then, you know, this new Microsoft, especially under the new CEO, you know, I'm actually quite encouraged with the direction that Microsoft is going in. You know, it's no longer a Windows first kind of a company where everything was just about driving more Windows licenses. We've already seen, you know, where they've opened up Office and many of their other services across to Android and iOS. They're in many ways, I think if you look at things like Windows Phone, which is just such a small amount of the market today, I think they've come to the realization uh, and thankfully they've come to the realization that you know, they're not going to be able to beat iOS and Android at that, at least not anytime soon. And so why fight that when they can embrace the opportunity that they have with iOS and Android users who want to use Office, who want to use various Microsoft services, including Skype and Link and the whole Exchange backend and all that kind of stuff. So there is, I'm quite encouraged by what the new thinking that Microsoft has. Plus, when you look at other things that they've been announcing lately, particularly things like HoloLens, that actually has quite a bit of potential. Not necessarily right away, it's still a very new technology, but when you start to think about the enterprise applications of HoloLens into, you know, particular vertical industries and then, you know, maybe, maybe it's five or 10 years away, but even in that kind of horizon, that could be quite an interesting market. And Microsoft is already getting enough momentum around that, that I think, you know, don't dismiss, don't write off Microsoft yet. I think they've got a lot of, uh, they're, they're turning the corner and there's someone to watch. Hmm. I think that they're actually doing a lot of work in the enterprise market. If, if, if there's one thing I actually observed, because uh, I spoke to my fellow counterparts looking at digital as well, it seems that they are actually focusing a lot on bundling the software and web services and hope to use that to kind of entice people to get the Surface Pros. So this is actually happening quite at scale in most of these companies out there now in, within the region. Yeah, and in fact, one thing to keep in mind too is, you know, the thing that the tangible thing that we tend to see through a lot of this is pr hardware, like things like Surface Pro, or even if we're talking about phones, Windows Phone versus Android and all this other kind of stuff. But the reality is, if you take a step back, what is really going on? What, what, what's the big picture here? It's really a battle about the services that you mentioned, right? It's that you look at what Google is trying to do with not just Android, but you look at the Google apps and what they're trying to do, and that's really fighting what Microsoft has got with Microsoft Office and 365 and all that kind of stuff. So a lot of the battles that are really playing 
out here. You know, I can use a couple examples. Even on the in the education space, we've got a couple of countries out here where Microsoft and Google have been fighting it out. It's a it's basically a platform battle, right? In Malaysia, the education ministry went with Google. It was a Microsoft loss. They went with Google and started to play Google. Whereas in Thailand, Microsoft won that fight. The Thai government went ahead with Office 365 rather than Google, and these guys are still fighting it out. And then maybe to bring this back to the consumer side and where these phones kind of play out, and maybe to the earlier point you were making about China as well, what does get interesting then is a lot of this is really a fight about services on t- that are layered on top of the phones, right? What is it about Google and Android? A lot of it is about those Google services. And a lot of those Google services are not on Windows Phone. And I would argue that's one of the reasons why Windows Phone, among many other reasons, of course, but one of the reasons why Windows Phone has just been stuck in a rut. Because what do a lot of people use? They use a lot of Google services. And if Google services like YouTube and Google Maps do not have a first-party port, you know, an application written directly for Windows Phone. Yes, there are a lot of third-party ones, but they don't work very well. Or they just open up the web browser, which isn't a great experience either. That's one of the reasons why Windows Phone hasn't quite taken off either, because it's that Google ecosystem, at least on the consumer side, that a lot of users outside of China, of course, are, uh, you know, very much, you know, looking for. And you don't quite get that on the Windows Phone experience. So it is very much about a platform and a services play. And so for me, one of the things that I watch for as a proxy or at least a leading indicator of how successful Microsoft might be with Windows Phone or I guess now going into Windows 10 and all this kind of stuff is really more about how successful the Microsoft services are going to be. And if we think about that from a consumer side, what that means is how successful is Bing going to be? How successful is Xbox going to be? How successful is Skype particularly when you compare to the Google alternatives, right? And if you think about what Google, what, what Microsoft might be able to do with mapping and all this kind of stuff compared to what Google's got on Maps, it's very much a platform against platform play that ultimately then in turn determines the hardware purchasing as well too. So it, it's certainly interesting. It's very good that you mentioned it's really more about the software and the services at mm-hmm. the end of the day. Yeah. Okay, I kind of want to come to another space which is also of your interest, which is wearables. Yeah. I mean, you cover much more than just wearables in consumer. I mean, people, when people think of wearables, they think of fitness and lifestyle wearables like the Fitbit and the Jawbone. But you also have some perspective in the enterprise. But let's start from the consumer space. How do you see the kind of fitness lifestyle wearables shaping because they also have implications to the enterprise side, mainly in the HR and mainly in people development. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, there certainly are a lot of, you know, everyone from Fitbit and Jawbone to, for that matter, even Xiaomi, they have their own little 13. (laughs) Yeah, correct. And it's only 13 US dollars, right? So talk about disruption. When you've got a Fitbit selling for, what, 99 US dollars, suddenly Xiaomi comes in there at $13, one three, by the way, not even three zero. You know, you've got a lot of these that are being deployed out here in Asia, and we do see a lot of that momentum. And frankly, again, that Shenzhen ecosystem is enabling so many of these cheap things that these things are the new Frisbees of the world or t-shirts of the world where you go to a corporate event, these things are given away for free, right? And, you know, maybe to your point too, HR department, having people more health conscious or not even HR departments that you could potentially even think about insurance companies or whatever it might be. If there's a way to motivate you to be more fit through these kinds of devices, of course, that is helping to enable things too. Now, keep in mind that when I mention insurance companies, it's not necessarily about the insurance company tracking you because there's a lot of opportunity for fraud too, right? You could potentially give your wearable to your kid 
And the insurance company thinks that, you know, hey, you're actually getting 10,000 steps a day where Mr. 50-year-old office worker is actually only getting however many (laughs) steps, much less, because he's sitting at his desk all day. It's not so much about that. But what we have seen is insurance companies at least, not necessarily using the data, but at least providing a benefit in the sense of, okay, maybe you get a small, like the insurance companies might do programs where, oh, if you buy more vegetables, you know, here's a discount for that. Or you can buy a Fitbit and get a discount off of that. So it might not necessarily be a direct relation between the fitness band data directly tied to what the underwriters determine as your premium, but it is a case where at least indirectly, if it helps to motivate a healthier lifestyle, then of course that's in the interest of the insurance companies, it's in the interest of HR departments, and of course just people themselves, right? We all want to be healthy. Mm. How about smartwatches then? I mean, the Samsung Gear, the Apple Watch, I mean, Apple Watch is only in North Asia at the moment. How do they shaping out into the market? Because they are also adjacent to these fitness lifestyle wearables. They are, but they are, of course, not just about fitness, right? The, in fact, I think what does get much more interesting about things like Apple Watch is the yet-to-be-proven killer application or applications, plural is probably the better way of putting it, of how we're actually going to use these watches, right? Yeah, sure, some of it is about health. Some of it unfortunately is about just notifying you when you have emails or messages or whatever, but I think that can be a bit annoying. (laughs) I think what does get interesting is what else can you really do with something that's strapped to your wrist that you wouldn't be able to do when it's with a phone? And there's a lot already in the in the month or two that, or the month or so that the few weeks that Apple Watch has already been out, we're already starting to see some interesting things being discussed, right? One example, females have been saying, it's great because I don't need to take my phone out of my purse anymore and I can take the call on my wrist. Or maybe I've left my phone in the kitchen and I'm in the backyard, I can still do what I need to on the wrist, right? Things about Apple Pay become interesting as well too because you don't need to take stuff out of your pocket, tap your wrist on the NFC terminal, boom, you're done and you can walk out. There's some other interesting stuff. I noticed one interesting app was something about a, there's like a game that you can play. If you've got other friends who have Apple watches, you know, the quicker that you can tag another person's watch with your finger basically determines whether you win or lose. So there's some interesting viral stuff that can happen that can potentially make Apple watch and other watches of course work. But that the key to making this work is all about having that developer ecosystem. And the challenge that many of the other watches have had, uh, the non-Apple watches have had is, you know, as with all due credit to Google, they of course have a huge developer ecosystem and they've enabled a lot on Android Wear. But Apple is really the one where a lot of developers are, you know, do get very, very excited about. So I think the key here to watch for is, you know, what are these kinds of applications that are going to enable people to want to use these watches right now? If it's just about getting a notification about messages and this and that, yeah, then the appeal is going to be a bit more limited. And maybe to your point about fitness, there are going to be cheaper options if you just want to look at fitness. You don't have to get a whole watch. And there's still issues about battery life and all this stuff. So we're still in early stages of watches now. But watch, no pun intended, but keep an eye on how this ecosystem develops in two generations from now, three generations from now. In other words, watch it two or three years from now, five years from now. I think then there's going to be a lot more potential. Even with the iPhone, right? Keep in mind that the original iPhone didn't even have, Steve Jobs didn't even let apps be written, third-party apps be written for the iPhone when it first started. But as that started to get enabled, that's where a lot of the power of the iPhone really started to get unleashed. And it's going to be a similar situation with the watches where right now people still aren't quite sure what we're doing with it, but we're starting to see early signs that, hey, there is some potential here. And that I think where it will get interesting is watching what developers do with the 
service, how we eventually start to be using these in five years' time. Mm. And that comes to my next point. How do you think wearables are going to be adopted in the enterprise? I mean, wearables in the form of the failed Google Glass was actually very useful in the enterprise space. Yeah. They, you can also think about situation about watches being deployed in the field where people need to be on the field to be able to receive information at a very, very quick rate. So yeah. how do you see them being adopted in the enterprise space? Is it going to be a consumer to enterprise or is there going to be enterprise straight wearables usage? Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned this because one of my biggest gripes about wearables and all the all the frankly all the media coverage about wearables yeah. tends to be it tends to be very consumer skewed, right? Mm. Whereas I think, you know, but even based upon my earlier comments, the consumer side still has a lot of issues to work out, particularly on what are you really going to use it for. But that kind of discussion is much more clear on the enterprise. The value proposition when you talk about how these things are used in the enterprise gets much more interesting. You talked about Google Glass, I talked a bit about Microsoft and HoloLens, think about how these things can be used in specific vertical types of implementations, right? Take anything from what construction, right? Let's say you've got an open field that you need to build a house or a building on. Through the use of augmented reality, you can already... Imagine where a an architect or a construction worker in the foreman knows exactly where these pillars are going to go up, how this building is going to look eventually. Or think about logistics where you know that these crates over here are, you know, have these in them, have this type of stuff inside them, and these over here have this other one. Or you start thinking about healthcare and you think about remote diagnostics and a lot of other stuff. There's a wealth of potential in the enterprise and the value proposition and application are much clearer on the enterprise side than they are on the consumer side right now. So I think what is interesting then and what's important to keep in mind is as much as we read about wearables in the news and maybe think of them from our own personal consumer perspective, the reality is that the potential, the faster potential may actually be in the enterprise. Now, some of those, yes, they might be leveraging existing consumer products, but some of these will be products that are designed specifically for the enterprise. A great example is hospitals in the US. There's actually a company that does this little band. All it does is basically check in and check out for uh, doctors and nurse staff, but it helps to motivate them to, basically there's a process that hospitals can implement to help them to sanitize their hands before they see their next patient. It basically helps to reduce the risk of hospital infections uh, in those scenarios. And so, and this is something that's designed specifically for those kinds of purposes. So we're going to start to see wearables used in a lot of different ways in enterprises. And actually, maybe another good example, the Disney Magic Band. Mm. You know, this is, a, this is a wearable that's being used at Disneyland where, you know, you can use it as a consumer to basically get into rides and all this kind of stuff and, and basically get in line for rides. But the designer of the Magic Band, it was actually designed by a guy at Frog, right? The industrial design firm. This guy actually started to look at Magic Band into how he could use it in other scenarios like healthcare. So yes, you will see a bit of this consumer commercial interplay and how one might inspire the other and the other stuff. But I think, again, don't. my, my point here is let's not understate or overlook the potential in the enterprise, particularly when it comes to wearables. If anything, the value proposition may very well be much more clearer in that, whereas the consumer side still has you know some stuff to work out. Mm, Brian, and I definitely think that there's a lot that we have covered today, and I'm definitely going to ask you back at some point to talk about other interesting things. I think we, on the side conversations, we have talked about a lot of other interesting trends that are happening in the client devices space. So help my audience, how do they find you? 
Oh, yeah. Uh, well, you can probably the easiest way is you can find me on Twitter. So it's at Brian B. Ma. That's B R Y A N B M A. Or you can go to the IDC website. My analyst bio is there. Of course, we have friendly account managers if you're interested in our services. But yeah, uh, probably the easiest way is to find me on Twitter. Okay. And you can find me at bleongcwmbernardleong.com or you can subscribe to this podcast at analyzeasia.com, A N A L Y S E Asia.com or uh, at Analyze Asia on our Twitter account. We are also very active there. You can also subscribe to our podcast through iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. And of course, um, please leave a review. One star to five star. Really, we generally welcome. So Brian, once again, thank you for coming on the show. Great. Thanks for having me, Bernard.